This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. This best of conversation is from December and the season of the winter solstice, but I really wanted to revisit it now, in the season not too far past the summer solstice. The nights are short, but lengthening now, and they're warm. And we have a tendency to want to stay up and out later than we do in the winter. The summer stars, the summer moon, meteor showers, they beckon us to come outside as much as our morning flowers. Enjoy this best of conversation. The month of December is particularly full of seasonal markers, and the winter solstice ranks high and oldest among them. This moment in time and space when our amazing planet turns on her miraculous axis and starts us moving back toward the light. In the Northern Hemisphere, this is a season of long nights, cooler temperatures, and rest. If each day has its needed portion of night, so too does an annual spin on this globe of ours need its portion of darkness and rest. Our daily and annual recommended doses of darkness heal and restore and regenerate in a way so different than those same powers of sunlight. Darkness is critical to our own health and well-being just as it is to the health and well-being of our gardens, indeed our entire planet. But in areas of dense human habitation, light pollution is rendering true dark more and more rare and endangered, which has immeasurable consequences on us, on landscapes large and small, and on wildlife and plant life. In anticipation of the winter solstice occurring at 8.28 a.m. Pacific Time on Thursday, December 21st, joining us this week to share more about the beauty of darkness are Amanda Gormley and Keith Ashley of the International Dark Sky Association based in Arizona. Both gardeners and nature lovers, they serve respectively as Director of Communications and PR and as Associate Director of Philanthropy for the organization. They join us today via Skype from Arizona. Welcome, Amanda and Keith. Thank you. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Thank you. That was a beautiful introduction. I would love to have that voice in our communications plan. (laughs) You can have it. I will give it to you. Um, (laughs) Thanks. So to get us started from your own experience about the world around us, both human and otherwise, why is darkness important to you and clearly ultimately brought you into a career choice that was advocating for it? Let's start with you, Amanda. Well, I think that darkness is important to me personally um, for a couple of reasons. The the most personal that I can share is um, my spiritual beliefs. I'm a Muslim American, and um, we track time by the site of the moon. We go by the lunar calendar, and when I considered taking this position, that was one of the things that was at the front of my mind, just our need, our inherent need to be connected to the universe through those natural cycles and through the passage of time. Hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you. And Keith? Well, you know, I I suppose I've been very lucky in my life to live in a lot of rural places that did have, you know, very dark and starry skies. So to me, it's just always seemed a very natural piece of life. Um, You know, the National Park Service has a little saying for some of their nighttime programs that half the park is after dark, but half of life is after dark, half mm. of the world is after dark. And I, I think because I feel so connected with the natural world, I've, I've always valued clean, healthy air, clean, healthy water, clean, healthy biodiversity, and clean, healthy darkness is, is just another natural part of that to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I grew up in a rural area in Colorado, and it was pitch dark at night. And when I went off to school for the first time and I was in a city, it was very hard to sleep because you could not find darkness. And it was the first time I had noticed 
what kind of deficit that brought to my own daily experience. And now I live and garden in a, a small suburban neighborhood, and we've recently gotten new streetlights up in my neighborhood. I think they're a special kind of light, and you might know more about this and, and inform us more about the kind of, you know, cutting edge technology and street lighting. But this particular light, I find very, very difficult to gate. And I notice it in my back garden. And it's one of the things that led me to uh, inviting you both to be guests is that I keep wondering what the impact of this light could be on the natural rhythms of my, my garden. I understand that you are, in fact, both gardeners. Describe how you might translate this importance of darkness from the biggest view that the International Dark Sky Association takes for the whole world to how you might translate this to a garden and gardener firmly interdependent on these cycles. Let's start with you, Keith. One of my introductions to larger scale gardening was was working on a biodynamic farm than having a small CSA. But in the last, let's see, seven years since I've lived in Tucson, my focus has really been gardening for wildlife, mm-hmm. planting, you know, very specifically for different species of pollinators. And, you know, that's that's what really concerns me is when we know that darkness is a piece of habitat like anything else, not only for the nocturnal creatures that rely on it, but also for most migratory birds migrate at night. And you know that's where I start to see an immediate disruption caused by light pollution. More generally, the, you know there is photoperiodism that that plants respond to the length of night for their flowering, some of them in, in very, very specific ways that they either need long nights or short nights to set off their flowering period. And I know that experiments have shown that when they're even um, exposed to tiny bits, short amounts of light in the middle of the night, it can disrupt that, that pattern. So, you know, like anything else that's disrupting the natural balance, the light is going to have some detrimental effect. And, and I think light pollution is such a new problem that we don't know very much about its effects. There was a huge study this year in done in uh, Bern in Switzerland about the effects of light pollution on pollinators, and it had pretty grave findings. Mm. Uh, the degree to which pollinator, the numbers of pollinators that visited a meadow that was lit up at night were greatly reduced, and the number of mm-hmm. visits that that the individual pollinators did to the plants, and there was a, a great reduction in the fruiting of the plants, and they found that the daytime pollinators could not make up for that. So it's a loss in production that sort of has a cascade effect when those plants don't produce their fruits. Those same pollinators that live off of those foods then see a population decline. I think the effects on wildlife and the and the effects on the sort of just natural cycle are they're certainly there and they're potentially enormous. Yeah. Keith, that was a, a really nice explanation of the importance of darkness, but I, I think there's also something really spiritual to it too, right? And the same the same thing that drives us to be gardeners, to be connected to the land or to understand the world around us through our gardens, we can apply the same desire to understand the world around us through the natural cycles of day and night. And artificial light is um, making it harder and harder to have that experience. Mm -hmm. Very definitely. I think it was Keith who mentioned that experience of, you know, starry night skies and that both physical and existential experience of standing under a starry night sky is very powerful and a very powerful perspective changer for most people, I think. And to think that our plants and our pollinators think of the millions of pollinating moths who make their life at night. To think that we are depriving them of either sleep on the plant part or activity on the moth part is just something that I think is almost invisible. We don't we don't notice it, and that's why this advocacy is so incredibly important. 
I want to step back just a tiny bit and get both of you to relate for listeners where each of you first became, because clearly this started early in your life, well before this career path for you. Uh, Describe a little bit about your early life and what you credit, what influences you credit with creating you into a nature-loving, garden-loving person. Let's start with you this time, Amanda. Well, um, I think like most things that carry meaning in our lives, it started really young for me. When I was a child, my my grandmother was an avid gardener and a nature lover. Um, And I remember going to visit her at her house and there was a birch tree in the backyard that had a ladybug nest in it. And Mm -hmm. so I would go out and visit the ladybugs and spend time with them. And she had a pussy willow tree and I would go and look at the wildlife that was thriving from the pussy willow tree. And, And my mom carried on that tradition of gardening. And um, it's really striking to me thinking about how those memories of interacting with nature is what feels like home and how much the land and and the things that grow around us kind of define who we are as people. I grew up on the East Coast in upstate New York and moving to Arizona. I'm still in transition of learning what plants grow naturally here um, and passing that on to my children so that they feel a sense of home. But one of the really beautiful things about IDA, the International Dark Sky Association, is that we get to talk to a lot of people about their connection to night and to dark. And we hear people telling similar stories of spending time with their mother or father or grandmother or grandfather up on their roof, looking at the stars or looking, Mm. having someone point out the big dipper and everywhere they go, no matter where they are, they can always look up and see some of those constellations that make them feel that sense of home. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're exploring the importance of darkness to our own well-being and that of our landscapes, plants, and wildlife. With winter's increased access to what should be dark night skies, we'll be back after a break to hear more from Amanda Gormley and Keith Ashley of the International Dark Sky Association. Stay with us. Hi, happy late summer to you, from my garden to yours. I might go out and say good morning and good night to the night sky from my garden, but what do you do in your garden at night? What do you enjoy most about it? Do you have strong starry or dark sky memories? I'd love to hear about them or even see pictures of them. If you feel like sharing, send us a note on the contact page at cultivatingplace.com or make a comment on Cultivating Place at Instagram or Facebook. If you don't already follow us on those platforms, please do. We'd love to stay in touch and hear from you. After all, the whole point of Cultivating Place is to have conversations about these things we love and that connect us all. Together, we gardeners make a difference for the better in this world. Now, back to our conversation with the International Dark Sky Association. You know, I did have a lot of uh, opportunities as a kid to connect with both gardening and nature. My my dad was a huge vegetable gardener, though we also had maybe 25 fruit trees and he kept bees. And uh, my grandmother also had a huge vegetable garden. And sometimes I, I felt like labor as a child in the summer and the uh, in the garden, but I think having that experience from as far back as I can remember made it feel like gardening is just what you do. It's it's part of part of life, being alive. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad also taught earth sciences and occasionally taught astronomy, so we had access to a telescope that he would uh, check out from the county, and that was very exciting to see. Saturn and moons of Jupiter. I stayed connected with uh, with the Earth and growing vegetables and being, you know, excited about all the the bugs and birds that are out there participating when you're in the garden. Now I'd like you to both describe the journey that led you from your previous, you know, your childhood and then your previous work into the work you do. What brought you? 
to the International Dark Sky Association. Let's go ahead and, and stay with you, Keith. I was an English teacher for most of my career life. I have about 18 years of experience. Maybe 10 years ago, while I was teaching high school in Kentucky, I became more engaged with the local food movement. And that's what led me to take on a farming internship. And then for a year, a friend and I had our own CSA and then felt I need to be doing something that connects me a little bit more with conservation. So I I took some classes in urban wildlife conservation Hmm. and started working with the Audubon Society. And that's where I really became engaged with wildlife gardening, with planting specifically for wildlife and for my my own enjoyment of wildlife, but also to sort of better understand how we can support wildlife in urban settings. Working in conservation pretty naturally uh, led me to International Dark Sky Association. I actually haven't been here that long, less than a year. So it's really exciting to be learning about things that we, we can be doing and are doing to affect light pollution. Yeah. And what about you, Amanda? Well, um, I found the International Dark Sky Association <laughs> on an online job search, just looking for um, a job I had been uh, freelancing for a while as a communications person. Um, and when I came across the organization, I wondered why a spy organization needed a communications director because the International Dark Sky <laughs> Association sounded so uh, <laughs> kind of under underground. I came just to meet everyone here and learn about the work and really fell in love as soon as I understood what our mission is to, to protect the night sky for present and future generations and just fell in love with the hugeness and vastness of the vision and, and the scope of work that I could be involved in. Yeah. Um, So I took the position and really enjoyed it um, and came on board understanding that a lot of this work is driven by the astronomy community and people's desire to keep the night sky dark so that we can use large telescopes to see what's out in the cosmos, um, which I I enjoy and I love, but it's it's not my passion. I really started to love the work and dig in and own the work when I realized how much there is to talk about when it comes to night skies, how it relates to all of these different interests like gardening or wildlife, um, that's when it really, really started to, to become something that I owned. Yeah. And I can totally see that. I Just in the conversation so far, a couple of things that both of you have said, this idea that, you know, darkness is such an important part, element to a whole spirituality and uh, darkness being a critically important element to habitat, which I, I don't think we consider uh, on any kind of conscious or, or daily basis. And the idea that you were talking about earlier, Amanda, this sense of home. And, you know, when you were describing that, I, I had sort of goosebumps because I kept thinking about, you know, early navigation and navigating by the stars and you know where you are based on the North Star or whatever your leading star might be. And and that sense of knowing, like, how can we find home and how can we be home if we don't have something to guide us? And the dark night sky is such uh, an iconic and rich symbol for that. That's right. And it even extends beyond just your physical place. I mean, in my role in communications, I talk to a lot of people and I ask people why the night sky is important to them. And one of the things that touches me deeply and that I hear over and over again is because darkness and our our connection to the night connects us to our humanity. It helps us understand our place in the world in a spiritual sense, not just in a geographic sense, although it can be applied to both ideas. Yes. So very, very definitely. Yeah. So we've been, we've been sort of getting to this. What is the International Dark Sky Association? When did it start? What is its history? And what is its mission? So the International Dark Sky Association is a not-for-profit organization that started in 1988. Um, Our our co-founder, Tim Hunter, moved from uh, the Midwest to some outside of Tucson, Arizona, um, and set up a a little amateur astronomy setup. He he wanted to observe the night sky. Um, And he started to realize that light pollution was obstructing his view of the cosmos. So he connected with a local 
uh, astronomical group, um, at Kitt Peak. Um, and the director there, David Crawford and Tim Hunter got together and decided to form an organization to fight this new issue of light pollution that was creeping across the world. Um, and they spent the next couple of years reaching out to the international community and establishing this this truth that light is polluting our nights and we have to figure out how to stop it. Um, so for the first couple of years of the organization's existence, it was very astronomy focused. The astronomy community bought into it really, really quickly and understood it very deeply. But it's so fun to look back because we see even in the very first newsletter in 1988 that was sent out to you know 35 members <laughs> when, when the organization was brand new, um, there's letters from members that talk about the need to keep skies dark for astronomy, but also because they realize that wildlife is coming to their homes when they keep the lights off, or they they understand this deep need for a natural night um, and how important that is to their sense of well-being. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like the organization has evolved over the last 30 years, and we still have a really, really big mission, which is to preserve the natural night for present and future generations. Um, but it, it's so fun to watch people enter the organization through all of these different avenues of entry, people who live in very urban places who are concerned about their health because of lights that are too bright, people who live in suburban places that are concerned about um, their well-being because they don't want to be exposed to light that's too bright and they want to have access to the night sky, and then people that live in really rural places that want to preserve their access to the night sky. Mm-hmm. We just had our annual general meeting and conference in Boston, which pulled together members from all over the world, uh, Amanda and I, and most of the staff just got back from there. And it was really fantastic to meet so many different people who, as Amanda just described, came into the organization from such wildly different directions. And yet we all come together valuing darkness and natural night and views of the night sky but some some folks were inspired because of glare because of a new neighbor who all of a sudden changed the, their home situation and now have been with the organization for more than 20 years after first getting involved in that avenue it, i think because night is such a basic piece of life that everybody connects in some way. Even if you're afraid of the dark, you may love the moon and the stars all that much more. Mm. This is part of everyone's existence in in one way or another, but maybe we haven't been thinking about it because it's been a given and it hasn't been threatened until very recently. And with the pace of technology and those new lights in your neighborhood, all of a sudden, we realized, oh, this is something else that, that, that we could potentially lose, and yet that we could also potentially protect so quickly and so easily. Yeah. So I, I think IDA is potentially everyone. As people hear about it, they get it. Yeah. And it's it's wonderful to have new people coming to us from new directions and, and getting involved with new passion. What you were just saying, somebody gets involved because their neighbor changes something. And every now and then my neighbor, who's quite close to me, will accidentally leave their back door light on. And it totally changes the the whole environment of my back garden. And it feels sort of violent. It feels sort of assaulting. And it, I, I will sometimes say, oh, that light is poking me in the eye. It is this very physical experience. The organization started in the 1980s and had sort of 35 members who it sounds like were mostly hobbyist or professional astronomers. You just had this large gathering in Boston How many members do you have now? What did the gathering involve? What what is the scope of the work and the membership and the outreach 
at this point? Currently, we have almost uh, 10,000 members and supporters who are involved in our work um, all across the world. So um, a a big part of our outreach is through uh, local chapters. We have chapters established in different countries and different regions of the U.S. Mm. Um, So the work is always expanding because those people on the ground who's who also feel like the light is poking them in the eyes, um, are talking to their neighbors and their friends or, or showing up at events and talking about the importance of the night sky and reaching out in all of the different ways we've been talking about today. Um, and I think I can let Keith talk a little bit more in depth about what we did at the annual meeting this year. Great. Yeah, so the annual meeting, it, it pulled together, we had 40 speakers and they were all kinds of um, experts Experts and on-the-ground advocates and just generally passionate people and they ranged from lighting lighting manufacturers and lighting designers mm. to chapter leaders who are throwing enormous star parties and, and night sky festivals artists writers scientists who are working on circadian rhythms who uh, study wildlife just like the organization the this was a microcosm of people coming together from all of these different directions to share all of the latest research and case studies and success stories about the movement and we had lots and lots of panels but then also great uh exciting questions and networking and the, the synergy that happens when you meet someone who shares your passion but holds a different piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they, they're approaching it from a different way or they're solving the problem that you've been trying to, to figure out. One of my questions is describe some of the biggest problems or issues that make this work so important. And I think that you've covered some of them, but are there any others you would like to add that may have come up, say, for instance, at such a meeting? Well, the you know, the human health issue is one that, um, you know, the American Medical Association came out with a paper um, positing that, uh, you know, light pollution is connected with some significant human health concerns, including cancer. Mm. And, um, you know, that that's an aspect of the work that is emerging and certainly of, of concern to many people. Um, we've, we've talked a little bit about habitat. I, you know, I think, as Amanda said, there is this deep, just basically human concern if if we lose access to the the skies the the stars do we lose a piece of our humanity Mm. i've I've read that 80 percent of the world cannot see the milky way from where they live Mm. and you know we know there's this baseline right when we forget how something was we we don't know what we're missing right and then are we going to fight to protect something that we haven't experienced? So a- another really important piece of the work is giving people access to night skies so that they will feel connected and so that they will fight for it. We have a, a huge international dark sky place program. Mm. So Amanda mentioned our, our global chapters well, these are, are global places that are certified as dark sky places, and it's a, a very rigorous application process because the places have to show that they have mechanisms in place for protecting their dark skies into the future. They have to have a whole community of supporters working on it. You know, To me, that's also a really important piece of the work while we're trying to hopefully fix those lights in your neighborhood so that you're backyard remains a really wonderful place for you to connect with with nature in the night we also want to protect the places that are currently dark so that they don't have this encroaching light pollution so i think that one of the most difficult challenges that we face is just connecting um just helping people understand that this 
issue of light pollution is a real thing. I, when we when we went when we were in Boston for the annual general meeting, I spent a lot of time um, looking at the lights and looking at the sky and remembering that before I started doing this work, I carried this knowledge that the stars are out there, but they just were in one place. When I was home in upstate New York in this like very rural area, the stars lived there. And when I was in a city, they weren't there. And it never, I never made the connection between the amount of light and sky glow on the ground actually prohibiting our access to the stars. Yeah. So it's it's a, a big thing for people to wrap, it's a very simple thing, but it's a big thing for people to wrap their heads around and then take the next step of, well, what do you do about it? And also, how do we address this fear of the night? Because we, we have lights for a purpose and we, as an organization, need to acknowledge that lights do serve an important function mm-hmm. in our lives as humans. But we, so does night, and so does darkness. And so we need to find a, a balance. And it's a very nuanced conversation um, about how to solve these problems. Right, right. Describe the, the range of actual outreach programs you have in place. Well, from Tucson, the International Dark Sky Association manages a couple of different programs. So one is our International Dark Sky Places program, which Keith described, which certifies public or private land as a dark sky place. Um, One of the really important things about the application process to become a dark sky place is that the applicant actually needs to commit that they will be advocating in their communities to keep the surrounding areas dark and also have programming on the ground that helps people connect to the night. A number of national parks um, Mm -hmm. are dark sky places and have dark sky programming that can look like a star party where they invite the local astronomy club to bring their telescopes up and allow people to look through the telescope or just um, be there during the night, have the park open for people to come and visit during the night. and then there's there's other dark sky places that have really rich programming that um, asks people to connect to our human heritage through their experience of exploring the night and and the night sky um, mm-hmm. through questions of mythology and how did societies throughout history um, explain the night or tell the stories of the night sky. Mm-hmm. And how can we relate to those things? Um, so the, there's really deep and interesting programs that exist. Um, and then there's also just very simple things like, for example, our, some of our chapters showing up at events and setting up a table and being there to talk about our work to anyone who's interested. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. A fairly regular practice for me, especially in the winter months, is to wake in the early morning dark and take my coffee out on the front stoop and greet the starry morning sky. In the evenings, I do the same thing with the last letting out of my doggies before bed. They go off to pee and snuffle, and I gaze at the night sky from my back garden, where the North Star anchors my view year-round. When I can see it, I say a good night of sorts. The dark night sky is, or should be, a constant in our lives. But in areas of greater human density, the access to a natural night sky can be difficult to come by. Today's guests from the International Dark Sky Association are sharing with us some of the efforts being made worldwide to solve the problem of light pollution in and beyond our gardens. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. You know, my friends often tease me. You, they say, can bring almost any topic back around to the garden gardening and gardeners, and for good reason. And given the compelling nature of gardens, it's not really that difficult if you ask me. Today's conversation about the importance of healthy natural darkness and conversation with the International Dark Sky Association is just such a clear and easy connection. When Amanda mentions this importance of tracking time by the phases of the moon in the Muslim tradition, and how finding a familiar constellation can give us each a sense of being at home, I get these little frisons of connection. Yes, I am nodding my head. Yes, 
We gardeners are everywhere, and this human impulse to garden is important. It makes a difference to our mindsets, to our families, to our communities, and our environments. I love these connections and interconnections. These happen for me in every episode, sometimes in places that I'm least expecting it. If you'd like to get some heads up on upcoming guests or direct links to recent episodes, make sure to go to cultivatingplace.com and sign up for the monthly A View From Here newsletter. It keeps us in touch in a little different way. Okay, back to Amanda and Keith and their work celebrating and protecting the rich, dark night sky. Can you give us an example of maybe a specific park that has achieved dark place certification and the kind of programs that they do, as well as one of the dark places that includes this more cultural education regarding the night? Yeah, we um, actually this year awarded the International Dark Sky Place of the Year Award to Headlands International Dark Sky Park, which is in northern Michigan. And it's directed by a woman who um, is a star lore historian. She actually spoke at our annual general meeting and said, I think I should explain it, what a star lore historian is. Yeah. I don't know. I made it up. (laughs) (laughs) So she... she, um, has a background in mythology and in understanding different cultures, stories of the night, and invites people to come and learn about those stories and um, is very connected to the indigenous community there and invites them to come and tell their stories of the night. Um, And they have different events such as um, I think they do like a full moon walk where you can go and explore the grounds during the night and be connected to the to the flora and fauna there as well as um, the stars above. Yeah. We actually have an interactive map where you can type in your zip code and find the closest place or you can scroll out and plan a path and do some camping if you wanted to travel around. Joshua Tree State Park just became an international dark sky place earlier this year. You know, many places are in the process. Mm-hmm. In fact, near Santa Cruz, a place called Pigeon Point. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a hostel there. So, yeah, Santa Cruz has a really active chapter, and they've been working on it for years. Uh, so um, it's it's quite a process. Mm-hmm. Death Valley National Park is the farthest northern place in California with a dark sky place. Yeah. Keith, you've been in in touch with some um, chapter leaders who are doing really interesting work in Utah. Do you want to talk about that? That's connected with reaching out to urban communities. Mm. And um, I know that one of our chapter leaders there takes people on urban walks in Salt Lake City and helps them think about urban ecology. And helps them look at lights and think about what lights are doing. You know, so much of this, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, those lights that are poking you in the eye in in your backyard. And I actually just recently have the same problem that has evolved. There's a name for that, and it's light trespass. And I find that vocabulary so interesting and, and helpful I think a lot of what our chapters are doing is education, that we're giving people tools and vision to see what's happening and what could be done to change it. Mm -hmm. I first heard about your work because I am the native plant garden curator at a natural history museum here in Chico, California. And one of our board members, uh, Dr. Marsha Moore, is a member of your association, and she gave out pamphlets at a one of the lectures at the museum maybe two years ago now. And I was so taken with this pamphlet and just kind of having my eyes open to, that's a really good point. I had never articulated this particular irritation in my own life and its, you know, effects on me. And I have been kind of thinking about it ever since. And so those pamphlets were were really helpful. Before we move on to action items you would like to see us as home gardeners take to help with the cause, how many current dark spaces do you have? And are there other success stories over the last decade or longer that you would like to share? 
There are um, 87 international dark sky places and many, many more in different stages of applications. It's a very successful program, and, and I consider it a success, especially in terms of outreach. So many people since I began working here said, oh, yeah, I've heard of the International Dark Sky Association because I was at the Grand Canyon and they're in an International Dark Sky Park, right. or because I saw in the media that a community near me has become an International Dark Sky community. So I consider that a, a huge public awareness building success. Yeah. And, and then also that the, you know, it, one thing that's been so wonderful and surprising to me are the people who reach out to us and say, I'm an astrophotographer. I would love to connect with you more deeply. I saw the Milky Way for the first time last year oh. and it changed my life. Yeah. And so often it's at dark sky places and parks where they have that experience. I, I feel like that's really working. Uh, another of our programs that we didn't mention yet is the Fixture Seal of Approval mm. program. I think that's also a, a really great success because online we offer um, all kinds of products that have been approved as dark sky friendly from all kinds of companies. We also work to make sure that those are available at places like Home Depot that people can access. And so helping share immediate solutions that you know you can use in your residential setting, I think is a, is a success. Yeah, definitely. Another success is that a lot of communities have started to understand what light pollution and its impacts are and that appropriate lights that are not too bright that don't trespass, that serve the function that they're meant to serve and um, aren't overlighting anything are really important to having safe, comfortable communities. And we've started to see um, a number of places make the decision to use lighting that's that's not as bright. So there's a, a Kelvin scale which measures the amount of light, the, the luminance levels, and the amount uh, of color in the light. Um, and, and IDA advocates for using light that's more yellow in tone and has less blue light because blue light is what really impacts wildlife and, and human health. Um, and it's also very glary and uncomfortable to see. Um, but one of the things that we struggle with is that decision makers feel like they're winning when they get more light for better value. And since the technology is advancing so fast, lighting technology is making it very cheap to provide a lot of light. And so we're asking communities to think deeply about how much light they actually need. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing a good response. There's a number of communities around the country and around the world that have decided to take on a recommendation to use 3000 Kelvin or less lighting um, as they replace older, different technology lights. Yeah. And clearly it would be costly, perhaps, decision for a community to take on. But if they incorporate it into their overall planning, it's absolutely doable and can make such an incredible difference really quickly. Right. I am so excited. And now I want to go online and look for all the dark places and go visit them and add them to my, my bucket list and advocate for my community to become one of the certified communities. But as gardeners and nature lovers ourselves... And we enter this time of solstice and the restorative season and dark and dormancy. What are three actions you, too, would like to see every gardener out there doing to help? Keeping in mind this idea of, of safety and security, and, um, but what are three easy action items you would like to see us take on? Well, um, I think one is just to simply spend time in your garden at night and, and witness the world that's awake uh, while the rest of us are sleeping and um, maybe share some of that joy with other people and help spread the word that darkness, there, there is a purpose to darkness and there is a need for it. Um, and, and it's a fun time to engage with, with what's happening. 
Another thing is for people to check the lights around their home and make sure that the light points down at the ground um, so that it's shielded and doesn't go up into the sky. That cuts down on sky glow, which is a contributor to light pollution. And also makes it so that um, you're, you're making it safer for migrating animals who need the stars to be able to navigate um, when you're not putting light up into the sky and distracting or, or scaring them. Um, and maybe if, if you're willing to, check out um, some dark sky approved, dark sky friendly lighting and think about switching the lights that are around your house. Mm-hmm. I have I have two big ones. Uh, maybe that will uh, count as three since since they're huge. The I can first probably one come up is... with one more, Keith, if you need to. <laughs> um, no, I, I'm more concerned that my two are are so big that I'm not going to be allowed a third one. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think of gardeners as the people who meet nature or the wild sort of halfway with our own intention and our own creativity, we order nature in some ways and organize it in our yards and in our gardens. And then, of course, it it does its own thing wonderfully, and it orders and organizes us in return. But I I think, to, and this is very much like Amanda's number one item, be intentional in bringing the night into your garden and into your your life. Uh, This year, I planted sacred datura, Mm-hmm. Um, and I got several new species of um, night blooming cirrus. Mm-hmm. So I have three different ones now. Wow. You know, both of those plants are pollinated by sphinx moths. And I had an enormous population of hornworms mm-hmm. that uh, you know, turned into sphinx moths this summer during our monsoon season. And it was fantastic mm-hmm. to have invested a little bit more in some night blooming plants. Uh, I've also, now that I've spent more time in the garden, I've realized that some things like, uh, I mean, we're in Tucson, so of course my plants are pretty specific to the Southwest, but we have this plant here, bee brush, um, Aloysia gratissima, and it, it has a wonderful smell that is 10 times more wonderful on a cool night. Right. I don't know why that is. And, and then I've been studying the constellations and I, I find that I have a lot more to share with people about the night in my garden. It's richer for me, but it's also something that, that I can be using to help other people access the night. So I'd really encourage gardeners to, to be intentional with their night gardens and, and that aspect of their lives. My other item is join us. Um, Check us out. Have a look at www.darksky.org. You'll see we have an enormous website with a lot of resources. Read the blogs. Start finding out about this and um, become a supporter, become a member, join our uh, newsletter. I think you'll be amazed at how enriching it is to, to become involved with this, this movement. I like I like all of those. I and and as I was listening to you speak Keith I was like, okay, now I'm going to plant a night garden. I'm super excited because there are so many plants that are fragrant especially at night to attract the pollinating moths because that scent helps guide them and then they're frequently white flowers. So to have a beautiful night white fragrant garden, what could be better than that, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I had a friend in Kentucky and she worked at the Women's Foundation and they had a huge moon garden. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot that you can do if if you set that goal. And I think that's going to really be part of moving the movement forward is connecting with naturalists and gardeners and experiencing that and, and, and working together with that aspect of habitat both on behalf of all the creatures out there, but also on be, on behalf of connecting humans better to the night. Yeah. So last question. What are your goals for IDA in the coming year, five years? 
Amanda? Um, one, one of our really important goals is to continue to find ways to connect people to the importance of the night and to darkness and helping people to embrace darkness as a part of what makes us human and is a, a, one of the things that we really need to thrive. Um, I think that's an important part of our mission and um, something that requires a little some work and some intention. Yeah. Keith? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's uh, pretty, pretty beautifully said. Uh, you know, our goal is to end light pollution reduce it as quickly as we can everywhere, um, continue to build awareness, uh, work together with everyone possible to solve the problem. I'll share really quickly one of the greatest moments of our conference. We had some lighting manufacturers there, and one fellow hopped out of his seat. He was so excited to ask a question and to share that what brought him into this work was his love of plants. Mm. It was really interesting to hear that. And, I, you know, I just want to see the movement grow and grow and grow as we solve the problem of light pollution. And once we've solved that problem, maybe we still have a mission, which is to keep people connected to the wonder of the night so that we don't go down that path again. Thank you both very much for being guests on the program today. Well, thank you very much for having us and for your interest in our work. And we're, we're thrilled to be able to share something that we both are really passionate about and be able to combine these two worlds together. It's a lot of fun. Yes, thank, thank you very much, Jennifer. And I guess I would add, if listeners want to be in touch with us, I'm, I'm Keith at darksky.org. If do you have gardening thoughts... I'm delighted to, to hear from people on this and, and stay in contact on, on the topic. Excellent. Same here. Amanda at darksky.org. Amanda Gormley is the Director of Communications and PR. Keith Ashley is the Associate Director of Philanthropy for the International Dark Sky Association based in Arizona, but working to bring safe, healthy, lively dark spaces with bright night skies to all places near you. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways that people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast so you never miss a conversation, as well as to read more about and see many photos from the International Dark Sky Association, head over to cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, Enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.